The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How did the Chinese see these issues? Exactly 20 years ago, China was welcomed into the World Trade Organization. It was after 15 years of arduous negotiation and China promised to liberalize its market, to liberalize its society, as some of the strings attached. But 20 years on, under President Xi, China in many ways is decidedly more illiberal than it was in 2001. So was letting China into the world economy through the WTO a mistake? Some economists and policymakers in the West have argued it, but the subsequent decades of global trade, not to mention the poverty alleviation that happened in China, make it a difficult calculation. What should the West have done instead, if anything? And how should the West engage with illiberal economies in the future? Joining me now are two eminent experts in the field. First is Dr. Yu Jie, Senior Research Fellow at Chatham House, who listeners might remember from the last episode of 2020 when we were talking about dual circulation. And we're also joined by Stuart Patterson, the author of China, Trade and Power, Why the West's Economic Engagement Has Failed, who has decades of experience working in Asia in investment management. Welcome to the podcast both. Stuart, perhaps you can start by explaining what were the conditions for China's accession to WTO at the time? Yeah, so obviously the accession process was a very long and drawn out one and it took about 15 years to get there. For context, before China's accession to WTO, China was trading with uh, the rest of the world, uh, but particularly the United States, um, on a very asymmetric basis, uh, with a pretty good market access to developed markets and very little in return from the American and European perspectives. And so the whole point of WTO accession was actually to level the playing field up. And this, of course, gave rise to uh, a very strong argument by, for, by proponents of, of letting uh, China recede, which was, you know, we've got nothing to lose. Um, as things stand at the moment, uh, they have access to our mar- markets, we don't have access to theirs. And it was a very powerful argument. And theoretically, China undertook to make substantive uh, liberalisation reforms in terms of granting access across various sectors, reducing tariffs. And to be fair to China, uh, that entailed quite considerable pain in terms of preparing particularly the SOE sector uh, for competition with the, the rest of the world. Of course, the terms of WTO accession uh, were theoretical. And uh, the, the big grumble that people have is really with the gap between the theoretical terms and the actuality on the ground. So, for example, the opening up of the telecommunications industry or the opening up of financial services industry have clearly not been delivered upon as was promised under the accession agreements. Yes, and then the SOEs that you mentioned being state-owned enterprises, of course, which at the time of accession, China was full of, I mean, arguably still is full of. Would you say that it was a mistake to let China into the WTO? As a lot of people, I feel like in the West these days, looking at China now, are saying. Well, the answer is, of course, from whose perspective. 
Because if you are a member of the Communist Party elite in China, you have done incredibly well out of uh, China's uh, economic rise. And China's economic rise, I think, can be fairly intrinsically linked to the permanency of those trade relationships that came about as a result of accession to WTO. Uh, the entrepreneurial class, the private entrepreneurial class in China, also did very well out of uh, out of a session. But from a Western perspective, it's very difficult to see what we got out of it. There is an argument put forward by um, a sort of uh, a neoliberal clique that clearly, you know, the Western consumer benefited from lower uh, lower cost exports from China. You know, we got cheaper TVs and cheaper phones, etc. And and that's indisputably true in as far as it goes. Uh, but there were many more pernicious influences than that. Primary amongst them, obviously, was that China's all-encompassing industrial policy meant that trade was taking place on very unfair terms um, from a market economy perspective. And so uh, the legitimacy of market economics, if you like, suffered from the fact that we were sending companies in to compete with Chinese enterprises, which were being heavily subsidised either directly or through lower labour law standards, lower environmental standards and what have you. And that that led, I think, in the West to uh, a a big increase in the sense that the the system simply wasn't working. The other point, though, was that the Western uh, economies were ill-prepared for the deflationary pressure that China brought about. It was less than a year after China's accession to WTO that Ben Bernanke was making his helicopter money speech talking about the perils of deflation and how we couldn't let it here, let it happen in, in Western economies. And clearly, you know, if you're going to trade with a country whose, at the time, its cost base was about one thirtieth of the developed market's cost base in terms of wages, uh, clearly wages weren't going to go anywhere in the Western world, or, or certainly not uh, amongst those portions of the population who were competing head on with, with China. And if wages weren't going to go anywhere, but you weren't going to let the overall price level fall, then the obvious conclusion from that is a large segment of your population are going to become poorer in real terms. And that's exactly what we've seen. So uh, China wasn't alone in being a deflationary force that central banks in the West chose to fight through First of all, very low real interest rates, then zero interest rates, then quantitative easing. But it certainly put that whole process on steroids, if you like, the deflationary pressure from China. And so I would argue that a lot of our sort of social and economic schisms that we see dominating political discourse in this country at the moment, not just this country, but across the world, have their roots in globalisation and in China's accession to WTO. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, I mean, I guess to start with, Jia, let's let's get your reaction. What do you think? Well, I mean, I wouldn't call it that letting China join WTO was a mistake made by the United States at all. I think as uh, any China watcher can able to tell you that one cannot really treat China's political system as a monolithic and China is not operate within just one party that dictate everything from the very top. But instead, and what we have experienced from the very beginning of early 21st century is that you have seen a level of liberalization from the Chinese central government system. So already showed some positive effects, but very limited positive effects for China joining WTO. But I think it's also is quite a naive for the Westerners to expect that China is fully open up its economy and integrated in the international trading system based on the term that has been decided by the Westerners. So I think it's really simplistic to think about in the binary terms that yes, perhaps 
is right, or no, perhaps it's wrong to allow China to join WTO. What we can see is that we can see this economic and political system of China is neither entirely marketized, you know, like in the Western market sense, or completely strict、um, state controlled. So as also China has a quite vibrant private economy. So I think this question put in here is is largely is less so about is less so about China change WTO. But instead, I think it's by joint WTO that really China be able to access to a wider world, and that China would consider as a single stepstone to access to the rest of the world. So I would I wouldn't really view it in a binary term. Can you talk a little bit about what the reform that has happened is? Because people look at the Sea China now and they're thinking, oh, while、well, foreign ownership of enterprises is still awfully difficult, you've still got subsidies. These national champions, to use their words, to describe companies like Huawei, for example. So, in what ways has China tried to liberalise? So I think let's look at from the central government perspective. To some extent, yes, you have seen the numbers of state-owned enterprises has been reduced, and secondly, you have also seen certain sectors that allow to have mixed ownership. So that's a very incremental positive changes from China from the beginning of twenty first century. But on the other hand, what I have seen so far is that reverse trend since presidency came to power. That sense of he invites the party to interfere the market force, but then on the other hand, to suggesting that the market should dictate all the economic activities. Then at the end of the day, again, he invites that、um, the state-owned enterprises should be dictated by party, because by no by all means that the state-owned enterprises in China, it is not just an enterprise itself; it's a social institution that carries social responsibilities to. Ensure that the normal economic activities inside the country will be operated normally. So I think let's not really using the Western sense of corporate governance and company governance sense to categorize Chinese state-owned enterprises. Yes, it has some very limited reform in the past, like introducing meritocracy in who get the top job. But then at the end of the day, it is the party politics that ultimately. Will dictate who will be the chairman or the CEO of that particular particular company, which control the national resources. So I think it's a level of dis,、uh, the resource distribution, distribution from the government point of view that they have to choose the most equitable company and the candidate that listen to the party says. But then on the other hand, they're also somehow hoping that SOE could operate. In the corporate framework, that could making some profit and also adding tax and revenue contributions to the country. So it's that hybrid identity of the ICOE and put in a very interesting situation here. I mean, Stuart, I guess please do give your reaction to what Jia has just said. But also, I had a question, which was that you've written an excellent book about China, China trade and power, about you know the the, the last few decades of trade. But do you think that a lot of the current Western soul searching is based on hindsight that China, you know, at the time of two thousand and one, we weren't to know that China wasn't going to go continuing down this liberalising trend. We weren't to know that someone like President Xi would be a strongman president who's coming and reverse some of these trends. So at the time, it was still, you know, it was still a fairly good shout to at least have a try. Yeah, I don't disagree strongly with that. I, I mean, I think you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing. In in my view, clearly, it was very naive. To believe that the political、uh, system was going to change as a result of a sort of a gradual marketization of the of, of the economy, I, I think 
the, the West underestimated the power of global events on, on the party, in particular the fall of the Soviet Union, which clearly sent a very stark message to the party hierarchy about what happens with Perestroika and Glasnost, and, and opening up the economy can be disastrous and it has to be managed very carefully. Clearly, Tiananmen Square was a warning that liberalisation, if it went too far, would produce unrest and demands and, and, and what have you. But also the incentive structures change. We underestimated the party's ability to capture the incentive structures. So on the one hand, you had a, a private sector that were doing very well, and that led to a sort of renegotiation of the social contract in China between the party and the people, which was basically, we'll make you rich, but you give us political power. But as the economy started throwing off bigger cash flows, the incentives for the party elite to maintain control of those cash flows increased. It didn't decrease. And so, of course, the, the, the initial impetus for Chinese growth was export orientated. But that then gave rise to obviously uh, rapid growth domestically in things like infrastructure and particularly housing and the land market. And clearly local governments had a massive incentive here because the party officials could line their own pockets out of land sales. And also it became a huge source of funding uh, for local government financing and therefore growth, which allowed uh, local government officials to climb the career ladder by doing well um, and growing their regions fast. So we set in place or what incentive structure was put in place that meant that the party didn't want to withdraw. So that combination of global events and changing incentive structures meant, in my view, that it was it was bound to fail. It's easy to say that with hindsight. It was less easy to say it at the time. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I partly agree with Stuart in here. I think the look the relationship between local government and central government is evolving, and that's part of the reason why, on the one hand, central government taking certain market reform initiatives that fe- um, face strong resistance from the local government that decided it has its own autonomy to dictate its tax and revenues and has autonomy to dictate how the local economy should be organized. So. I think this is nothing new for China. Even back to 80s, that sense of dukedom economy longly exists in China. And also, let's be frank, it, I mean, from the very beginning, since 1979, when first time Deng Xiaoping introduced economic reform, and he was really never prepared that China is going to embrace that kind of political reform that they has in the Western sense anyway. So I think perhaps it's really that Western perception would come conclude that one day, sooner you have economic liberty and therefore political freedom will follow naturally. And that certainly does not apply in China's case because this is the government that obsessed with investment on the one hand. You know, China's Communist Party could be considered as an investor, but also on the other hand as being a very strong controller at the same time. Sure. When you mention the reason why it hasn't worked out so well for the West, for example, the loss of manufacturing jobs uh, to China, the deflationary pressures that China's introduction into the world economy created. Is there a certain sense that that is one stage in a causal link, but since then, actually, Western countries could have could and should have done more to move up those post-industrial areas, up the values chain into more high-tech areas? We're hearing about Boris Johnson, for example, talking about regenerating the Red Wall areas into more of a climate-friendly, high-tech uh, notion of things. So 
in some ways, the, the, the Rust Belt in America, the, the post-industrial areas in the UK, what they lacked was a Western notion that actually now we're moving up the values chain. Those cheaper jobs are going elsewhere. Totally fine. That's what happens to countries as they grow. But we need to create new jobs. And the West just hasn't done that as well. Well, broadly speaking, the West has done what you said it ought to do. I mean, the the low-end manufacturing jobs have gone and new jobs have been created. But the reality is that the substitutability between uh, in the labour market is just not that simple. You can't take a uh, a steel worker and turn them into a semiconductor designer over, over overnight. But it's not overnight because it has been 20 years. Sure, but the speed, yeah, no, absolutely. But the speed with which China took market share in the export markets was really phenomenal. I mean, remember that in 2000, China was exporting about $250 billion worth of goods. And then those exports grew at about a 30% compound annual growth rate for the next six years. They, they, they basically uh, quadrupled. And that kind of market share gain um, led to the loss of about 2 million jobs in the United States, for example, and, and a similar percentage decline in manufacturing in many other Western, Western countries. So could Western governments have done more to ease the social dislocation that that, that, that caused? Of course they could have done. But equally, what we've, we've learned during the pandemic and what we've learned as we have observed the geopolitical dimension to China's economic policy is that outsourcing critical manufacturing capabilities uh, to the lowest cost producer is not necessarily compatible with national security. It might be the right thing to do from a prosperity point of view. But what China has been very good at doing is weaponizing its economic power. And remember that China's share of global manufacturing value add that was just about 6% at the time of WTO's accession is now about 25% and still growing. So, you know, if China was a company, you would have the Monopolies and Mergers Commission crawling over it, shouting, this is anti-market behaviour. Now, a dependence on low-cost manufacturing countries is one thing for the for low-end manufacturing, but in, in a, a geopolitical global rival, and with that degree of concentration, this poses serious geopolitical risks to the free world. And so I'm not sure that you can leave that entirely to the market. And obviously, it's not been a market-driven move to China. China's industrial policy has captured those industries in many cases, and in many cases, in direct opposition to where their natural comparative advantage would be. So, you know, for example, China makes half the world steel, but China has no comparative advantage in steel. You know, it imports its iron ore because its own iron ore is not not up to scratch. It's deficient in water, and of course, steel is an incredibly water-intensive industry. They burn dirty coal in order to generate the electricity to produce that steel. However you look at it, and of, and of course, at the, the time of the, the, the steel industry's rise in China, you know, the cost of capital in, in China was significantly higher than it was in, in the West. So however you look at it, there was no comparative advantage there. And so, so one of the ramifications of engagement with this sort of statist mercantilist economy is actually that far from a sort of Ricardian free trade and where countries discover natural comparative advantage and resources are allocated more efficiently, by engaging with this kind of mercantilist uh, economy, actually resource allocation is distorted to a a level that is suboptimal. And obviously, when you trade freely with economies like that, you import that misallocation of capital because your economy starts to reflect 
what the large trading partner is doing. You pick up the pieces. So if China decides we're going to throw state money at dominating the robotics industry and will drive international competition out of the robotics industry, then your economy starts to develop in a way that is obviously dependent on China for robotics and the robotics industry doesn't develop in your country. Well, what about labour as a comparative advantage? China has lots of it and it's very cheap and also environmental standards. You mentioned coal. Yeah, so, so, so it makes perfect sense that a lot of that low-end manufacturing toys, um, you know, anything to do with uh, plastic moulding industry, etc., which is where China initially excelled in the international market. That made perfect sense in terms of, of comparative advantage. And it was certainly uh, welfare enhancing for the world. But the capture of what you might call advantageous industries, industries that benefit enormously from economies of scale and where China can always be the lowest cost producer just because of the scale of the country and the industrial subsidies that it receives, subsidies that those companies receive, you know, that's a very dangerous uh, level of economic engagement to get into. And particularly if we bring in at the higher end IP theft and the way in which China is, is trying to capture these industries, it's taken the West a long time to wake up to the fact that this is a geo-economic competition that China has been fighting for many decades while we haven't really realised that we were in a competition. Uh, well, I think I, I, to some extent, I disagree with uh, what Stuart said. I mean, China is not only a manufacturer and not only an advantage taker, but on the other hand, China is also somehow the world's largest con- consumer on many sectors that Americans and Western societies are very good at. I mean, just to give one example, for example, semiconductors. I mean, this <laughs> if United States finally decided to stop, completely stop a semiconductor to be exported, to be imported towards China, and then that means the American semiconductor industry is going to lose 25% of its total market share. So I'm afraid in nowadays in the world economy, we're getting so entangled. It's very hard to debate that by suggesting we can just completely cut off China from that chunk of something and therefore let's formulating a new model. I mean, I remember in previously in your program, we spoke about in the past about China's dual circulation strategy. You know, another layer which I want to emphasize in here is that layers of export or the external circulation, that external demand and supply, and China's still very much keen on. No longer really the manufacturing hub of the world, but instead what China is interested in exporting high-tech, um, high-end technology products or technology license. So it's a way of gaining China's balance of payment as well. So I think to go further, what we expect to see is that China is, will one day, sooner or later, become some kind of compatible competitor with certain Western industries. I mean, it's no longer just about the Chinese workers eat all cakes, but it's also the Chinese technology and Chinese um, <laughs> technology competition that would ever intense, ever intensified and become some kind of new frontier of competition here. So I think apart from just suggesting that China, it is the, you know, winners take all and eat all the cakes, but China is also a consumer by itself as well. And also, if you're actually judging by what Donald Trump has suggested on phase one trade deal, the way how he handled the trade war is actually bounded China even closer with the United States in terms of trade relations. And what he has done is actually produced a market distortion by allowing China to purchase that amount of that volumes of agriculture and technical products from the United States. So China is not alone to be blamed in here.
Uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about what's happening inside China. You mentioned dual circulation, for example. Uh, Maybe you can just briefly explain again for listeners what that is. But also, you know, the idea that China is moving, trying very hard to move up the values chain. It's trying to balance out, uh, limit its steel production. It's trying to move into things like semiconductors. It's trying to give out as manufacturing jobs to places in Southeast Asia because it realizes that actually moving up the values chain is what a developed country does. Okay, um, let's start with the basic on dual circulation. That is the latest economic strategy um, has been introduced in the latest 14th five years plan um, issued by the Chinese government. What is no longer the case that China has to rely on export-oriented economy only in order to regenerate the China's economic growth. But instead, and what China's interested in doing is by relying product, producing things domestically, but also consume things domestically. So just domestic demand and supply, which would made up a large chunk of the Chinese economy, the internal circulation. Now, the second layer is the external circulation, which is to say that China would continue to drive its export, but the quality, not the quantity, but the quality of the export should really go up the value chain and therefore boosting the balance of payment. So that is two together added as two circulations, therefore dual circulation. And that is the latest economic strategy. However, whether it work or not, I mean, I still like to put a question mark in here because ultimately, if you're judging on consumption, you have to rely on that the Chinese workers would be enable itself to have a level of sustainable income to be able to consume those Chinese products that are produced by the Chinese manufacturer. Now, it comes to the second layer in here, which uh, a concept Stuart referred earlier about this geoeconomics and geopolitics. And what I've seen so far is I've seen that trend of national security and developments have now go hands in hands and the Xi Jinping's China. And that's particularly the case when it comes to the 14th five years plan which to say that China itself also considering the insecurity of supply chain, and China itself also openly admit that there's a sense of um, very strong geopolitical headwind that could really disrupt China's own domestic production as well. And therefore, when it, com- when it comes to considering supply chain, it follows mostly from the perspective of national security, but also from perspective that within the high-tech sector, and within supply chain, that could guarantee a large number of employment, and therefore, again, that would be boosting, um, improving everyday's um, life of ordinary Chinese citizens. So these are the two concepts that's been introduced quite um, this spring. But whether it work or not, and let's wait and see. Stuart, if if it works and China is able to move up the values chain, your problem presumably will not be solved because it looks like the alternative is countries like Vietnam, who are politically not that much more liberal than China is, and who you know serve the role of China from the early two thousands in that they have lots of cheap labour and poor environmental standards and all the rest of it. And um, so. Presumably, to some extent, the genie of globalization has been let out of the bottle. It has lifted a lot of people out of poverty in the meantime. But even if China does manage to move up the values chain, those jobs are not coming back because there are other people who are going to offer cheaper manufacturing capabilities. Yeah, I mean, th- th- don't get me wrong. I'm not arguing that um, we should be reshoring or trying to reshore low-end manufacturing jobs. And you're right that those processes you've described are already well in- well advanced. You know, uh, Vietnam is taking low-end man- manufacturing uh, uh, jobs, etc., from China. The issue is here: what what, what kind of uh, global trading system do you want? Do you want one that where resources are allocated efficiently along market lines, or do you want one where 
every country competes for the level of government interference that you can engineer in order to try and and create um, create a comparative advantage in your industry. And so obviously the amount of money that the Chinese, for example, threw at the telecom equipment manufacturers in order to develop 5G, you know, is extraordinary. That that whole industry came about out of 3G with the homegrown CDMA standard that China developed there. So this is sort of very long-term, deep state involvement in the economy. And so the big question really is, can a market economy survive and a liberal society survive and engage economically with sort of totalitarian mercantilist economies? And I think the answer and the evidence of the last 20 years is no, that it's incredibly debilitating to the market, uh, market economy. Globalization has been a boom to, to market economies up to a point. China, of course, changed the scale. I mean, China was on a, on a, on a completely different scale from everyone else. I mean, we talk about China as being the second largest economy in the world now, which it, indeed it is. But in a per capita basis, China is decidedly average. I mean, it is spot on the average. It's just that the population was so large. So it was that, that scale combined with the mercantilist approach and the sort of statist approach that has led to the the situation we now find ourselves in. Uh, I mean, in reply to the semiconductors argument, I mean, you're absolutely right that China is a consumer of semiconductors. And, you know, cutting them off from American supply would be detrimental to the short term interests of the American semiconductor industry. But what history seems to tell us looking at the last 20 years is the choices between disengaging and losing 20% of your sales or keeping this level of engagement and losing the industry entirely. Because clearly, as, as, as we, you know, it's been pointed out, dual circulation can really be interpreted as export if you can and import only if you absolutely must. It is about a move towards autarky in, in China because the Chinese are becoming increasingly aware of their own economic vulnerabilities, having exploited other peoples for the last decade or so. Dual circulation, I would view as a, a, a retaliation, a reflection of the weaponization of globalization, which, uh, which is what the, the geo, geoeconomic battle we're in now is about, really. Yeah, I wanted to come to you on this, which is that to what extent should we decouple it? Because how much should political ideology matter in trade in in, our, in this world of ours? We can't choose who in which country is governed in what way, but we probably still have to trade with them. And as a child of China and the Chinese middle class, you know, I'm thankful for the global trade that has happened with China in the last few decades, because otherwise I wouldn't be sitting here with you. But aside from all of that, is it even possible to be, have a political view on trading partners? I mean, we must have to just trade with certain people some of the time. Well, of course, we should have a, a political view re, um, regarding trading partners, irrespective where we're sitting anyway. I mean, that's just the nature of the politics, you know, it seems to be more binary than ever before. So we don't need to that, deny that. But on the other hand, I think let's bring another element in here, which is essentially about accountability of any government, irrespective of which political system you are. I think at the end of the day, it's the accountability between the governors and those who are being governed that matters, and to judging how successful that political system it is for its own people. So, so far, judging by China's uh, result of economic performance, I think we can reasonably conclude that the economic accountability of the Chinese government has managed to deliver to the ordinary population. But on the other hand, there's also 
drawbacks and disadvantages. For example, you know, this isn't really sufficient political freedom and isn't sufficient、um, that sense of personal pursuit within this political system. So what we can see is that it's not really black and white picture. Because because the world economy are now divided because you are now market economy and market economy and therefore we decided not talk to each other. I think what we should do is we should find a solution that some sense of peaceful coexistence between non-market economy and market economy. Stuart, I wanted to come back to you on one of the things that you said earlier on this on this train. I can see you want to come back on that as well. You said that trading with China, for example, threatens the liberal way of life in the West. And at the time of your book's publication, you know, it was the height of the Trump era,、um, and I can see why it was easy to say that liberal society was under threat. But you know, now with、uh, the Biden presidency and whatever you might say about Boris Johnson, he's not exactly a Trumpian populist. Has that threat to the liberal society that you saw at the time blown over because it was just a bit of a blip? No, not a, no, not at all. I mean, to to me, the 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 threat to、um, a, a liberal society, the deflation from China forced central banks in the West to print money, cut interest rates to zero, and we've had this bifurcation of inflation where、um, wages haven't gone anywhere, property prices have gone through the roof. We've had the benefit of some lower manufacturing inputs. The, the the issues I'm talking about here are, you know, the, the next generation cannot afford to buy property, right? As a result of these policies aimed to stave off deflation, property ownership is a key part of a liberal society.、Um, it gives you a stake in the society. It gives you a stake in the protection of property rights. So the fundamental issue behind Trump and and to some extent Brexit, or I think they're, they're they're very different issues, was that people were feeling that the system wasn't working for them, and therefore they wanted to attack the system. And we're no closer to a solution to that than we were before. So no, I don't think the departure of Trump or the sort of fading in 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 people's memories of the referendum really solves solves anything. But I do want to pick up on a, on a, on a couple of things. I mean. The success of China sort of justifies the government. I, I, I don't see that. The economic success of China has been to、uh, of the party, the Communist Party in China, has to produce incredibly strong growth in percentage terms, often incredibly low base. And that low base was in itself created by the Communist Party. So, of course, if you create a low enough base through a cultural revolution and a great leap forward, yeah, you can grow your economy by making really very simple changes. And all that spectacular growth has done is taken per capita GDP in China up to the global average. So it is not a, a very short period of time. Uh, yeah, but、um, you know, other countries have done a similar thing. Korea, Israel,、uh, as examples,、haven't. and other countries haven't. Country haven't. No, other countries haven't. And to give credit where credit's due, off that low base, they have achieved average. But but does that add up to a level of accountability between the population and the governors that justifies the system? Personally, I don't think it does. It's you know, but but that's obviously a subjective judgment call. You know, I think there is a, a danger of 
uh, there's certainly a danger of not giving China any credit at all for what is achieved. And, and since the late 1970s, it has has grown its economy and it has lifted people out of poverty. Although, obviously, as uh, Premier Li himself has said, you know, there is still a very large proportion of China's population that is living very close to the breadline. And those gains have not been evenly shared. You know, income and wealth inequality in China is on a par with the Western market economy, you know, with, with the United States, and obviously is significantly worse than many social democratic uh, economies. So we, we mustn't overlord their achievements either uh, as the party. And clearly, I think, as China is moving away from the market reforms and moving towards autarky, greater a greater role for the party in the economy, a greater role for the state in the economy, what we are seeing is is China's growth rate grind to a halt. And of course, the official numbers, I don't, don't think anyone believes the official numbers, but the issue is that if those growth rates have been exaggerated for the last four or five years, as I believe they have, and with China's demographic time bomb coming home now, the overinvestment that has taken place and the malinvestment that has helped prop up the GDP numbers, but it's very doubtful whether it's actually contributing anything to positive economic welfare. We, we could be in for a very interesting time in China if people's faith in the ability of the party to continue to deliver better economic standards of living is shaken. And I think in a large, to a large extent, that is behind President Xi's reorganization of priorities. He no longer talks about high growth. He talks about a moderately prosperous society with Chinese characteristics. He's reorientating people's policy goals towards a broader concept of national rejuvenation, preparing them potentially for the idea that they need to be more aggressive towards Taiwan and that there are other geopolitical factors that the Chinese population should take pride in rather than simply getting wealthier every year. So that reorientation of policy, um, I think, is a reflection of the fact that China's economic model is already bumping up against serious constraints at a time when per capita GDP is, is, is average. Tia, uh, we've got to wrap up soon. So final word to you. Sure. I think it's less about Xi Jinping reorganized the economy. I think that's really what had happened was since he came to power, the time that the economic challenge of China was not as precedent and it's not as you know imminent as it is now. So I think we can conclude that nowadays China is reorganizing its economy. But really back to the time since he was came in power and he was really on the high right and China's economy would just keep going, keep going. So I wouldn't necessarily say we're not in the moment, um, you know, in that moment of reorganizing economy as such at all. But instead, is how are we going to measure the well-being of individual, how the individual felt about whether they trust the government or not? And that is really the big question for the Chinese government and also for the Communist Party. I mean, by no way to advocating what they have proposed, but I think at the end of the day, it should be the Chinese population have the judgments to make and not supposed to be to be the Western commentators to make the judgment on how successful this government it is. Stuart and dear, thank you very much for joining Chinese Whispers. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there. 
If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast at spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening and join us again next time. Bye.